States. But we want to start the show talking about what is happening in the United States. You might have heard in the news the charge against the one police officer in the death of George Floyd. That charge has been upgraded and there are still calls for upgraded and more serious charges for the others as well. As you know, and you've been following along, I'm sure we have seen a number of peaceful protests and unfortunately violence erupting in many of those as well in the United States and around the world. Well, my first guest on the program today lives on Vancouver Island, but has family in the United States and has been personally hit with tragedy because of this. Deontay Jelks is a principal at the Ladysmith Intermediate School and joins me on the line now. Deontay, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thank you. Really appreciate you. First of all, my condolences. I'm so sorry to hear that you lost both your brother and your cousin in one of these protests. Uh, how are you doing? I'm uh, doing okay. Uh, taking it day by day. Uh, it's been um, quite overwhelming, but you know, just receiving uh, supportive emails and calls uh, from friends and strangers has, has done uh, great things for my soul. So what happened to uh, your brother and your cousin? Well, uh, my brother went to go uh, pick up my cousin, uh, and they were driving back uh, to my mother's house. Uh, they were stopped at a uh, street uh, street light, and uh, there's like mayhem and chaos uh, going on on the south side of Chicago. And, uh, and all of a sudden, a blue SUV pulled up, and they're, they're, he shot him. Just both as they as they stopped there, just waiting to go. Yeah, and just uh, just amongst all the chaos, they were just they were just shot dead right there in the car. And any idea? I mean, did they? Uh, did a, was there a suspect, or do you know anything about if there's no. an investigation? Uh, as of right now, uh, there is an investigation, but uh, as far as uh, any suspects, uh, we I haven't heard anything yet. And that must have been absolutely devastating for you getting that phone call. Uh, it, it it was. I, I dread phone calls uh, from Chicago because I, I it's always it's not good news, and I just. Uh, you know, it just broke my heart uh, hearing that my uh, little brother and my cousin are, are gone now. How long ago did you leave Chicago? I left in uh, 2010. Uh, my wife, uh, she's from Victoria. She told me that, you know, we can't be here longer. And, of course, uh, being in Chicago my entire life, I was desensitized uh, to the violence. And, you know, she told me, this is not normal. What's going on here? We have to go. And so... Uh, I think that was the best decision of my life uh, to listen to my wife and to move uh, to Canada. And when these protests started up uh, because of uh, of the killing of George Floyd, were you fearful for your family members knowing that there were these these protests and that many of them uh, were turning into these violent events? Well, I wasn't, at first I was not fearful because I didn't think it would escalate uh, as it did. Uh, usually uh, there's a protest and then it's uh, the flames die down within a day or two, and then it's uh, back to status quo. Uh, but I didn't really think uh, that this will pick up and, and this will happen. What do you think about when you're watching these protests and, and watching what's happening in the United States? I, you know, my people, people in general, people of color, you know, not just people of color, but everybody, you know, we are uh, sick. Uh, we are tired. Uh, we are traumatized of not uh, getting justice. Uh, you know, it shouldn't be a separate judicial system uh, for people. It should all be the same. You know, it should be equitable treatment for everyone. But, uh, you know, year in and year out for decades, for generations, uh, the justice system is just not built uh, for people of color.
A lot of people have talked about th- that something is different this time and that this has sparked protests around the world and that uh, a lot of people referring to it as a tipping point. Do you think that's a, a fair assessment of what's happening? Yeah, I, I could say, uh, you know, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, you know, week after week, there have been uh, senseless uh, killing of uh, unarmed individuals and uh you know, with the George Floyd murder, it was just, uh, it was enough, enough is enough. Uh, you know, now where there are celebrities speaking out, a lot of people are speaking out now. So I hope that, you know, this movement has enough steam and continue on uh, with change that we're looking for and not just uh, another incident that we're going to overlook in a couple of years. Uh, you you mentioned when you moved to the Vancouver to Vancouver Island that that you didn't realize or that you had been desensitized to to what was happening in the states. What was it like for you living in Chicago? It was terrible. Uh, you know, like I say, I was desensitized. Uh, you know, far as uh, education system, if you lived in a black neighborhood or a neighborhood of color, you did not get the same education as your counterparts. You know, uh, luckily for me, uh, I was bussed out uh, to an all-white community uh, as a teen, uh, as a as a uh, as a kid, and uh, you know, I received an excellent education uh, from people that cared about me and from an unbelievable principle that inspired me to do what I am doing today. And if I didn't have that, I don't know where my life will be right now. Uh, as far as housing, you know, there's something in Chicago called redlining, where there's red lines uh, drawn around uh, certain neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, there's unfair financial practices where you're not able to get loans, even though you probably have a college degree, uh, just like your white counterpart, but you're not able to get loans. And, you know, we are in Chicago are confined to neighborhoods. So when you look at, you know, where I'm living now in Vancouver Island, uh, it's not segregated at all. You live where you live. But in Chicago, it's very segregated. You have all black neighborhoods. You have all white neighborhoods, Mexican neighborhoods, Italian neighborhoods. It's all segregated. And uh, it's it's terrible that, you know, I grew up uh, in that area. And the next thing is uh, infrastructure. Uh, the infrastructure does not compare to those of a white neighborhood or suburbs. There's no swimming pools, uh, no basketball courts, uh, no bowling alleys, no football fields. You know, I as a kid... I played football field on a gravel field. <laughs> That's where I learned to play. You know, there's a chance of cutting yourself on grass or rocks, but, hey, that was the only field available. But, uh, you know, those are some of the things that need to change to address systemic racism, you know, education, housing, infrastructure, that all needs to be addressed before there's a real change. There's been a lot of comparison between the United States and Canada and people in Canada saying, oh, it's not as bad here. We don't have the same systemic racism as in the United States. What would you say to people who might suggest that there isn't racism in Canada? I would say, you know, take off your sunglasses and uh, take a better look. Uh, Systemic racism, you know, as far as U.S. and Canada, you know, is, is built on the backs of, of people of color. You know, if you look at our indigenous communities, you know, the, the way indigenous people are treated here in Canada is the way black people are treated in the United States. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's swept under the carpet a little bit. You don't see it. It's not as a word uh, racism, but there is subtle racism uh, throughout uh, Canada. And, you know, and I experienced it firsthand, you know, being a principal of uh, seven, uh, several First Nation schools here, here in B.C. Uh, one time we went to a, a gas station up north and our kid, I walked in a store with our kids to purchase things uh, from a long field trip. And, um, you know, the, uh, the cashier there started following my students around, looking at them, you know, thinking they're going to steal something. And I told my students, you know, 
if these people are not going to respect you, they don't deserve to get your dollar. Hmm. Leave all your things here. We'll leave and we'll go somewhere that's going to respect you. And we left. And I, I think that was a life lesson that they'll remember forever. What can be done or what what do, would you say to people then if if are asking, honestly asking the legitimate question, what what needs to change or what what can just an, anybody do to start making those changes and to start addressing racism? Positive dialogue. Don't be afraid to approach or talk to people. You know, people need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable in conversation. You know, there's hard questions that need to be asked. And then, you know, there's going to be answers that are going to make people uncomfortable, but they need to listen in order to understand what systematic racism is and how its role has contributed to the decline of uh, people of color, you know, in Canada and the U.S. All right. Well, again, I am very sorry for your loss, but uh, I so much appreciate you agreeing to talk with us today and, and to join the program. Deontay, thank you so much. Thank you. really appreciate it. Well, earlier this week, uh, you likely heard the news, and it was that Deputy RCMP Commissioner Jennifer Strachan, commanding officer of the RCMP's BC Division, sent an email to officers, and that email, well, that one was to confirm that an apology had been made. But if you back up a bit from that, it was uh, talking about some tweets that had been sent out and what those tweets were suggesting about RCMP officers. And since that happened, and it was from an account linked to the Safe Surrey Coalition, an apology was made by Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. But it has a lot of people questioning why these tweets were sent out in the first place when they are being described as unprofessional at best. Well, now two Surrey City Councillors have written to the Premier of BC saying they are fearful for the public safety as the transition from an RCMP force to a civic force continues. One of those councillors is Brenda Locke, a Surrey City Councillor who joins me on the line now. Councillor Locke, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, So what's in the letter that you and your fellow councillor wrote to the Premier? The letter is is uh, basically saying to uh, to Mr. Horrigan that uh, these kind of indiscretions and this uh, very deliberate attempt to undermine Surrey's uh, RCMP is completely not only unprofessional and inappropriate. It's it's very deliberate, and uh, you know, um, in Canada. The policing is done by the consent of the public. And so undermining the police, um, that's just that's just going to hurt everything that we have to do in terms of public safety. Did you see the tweets that were sent out on on that that from that Twitter handle that's linked to the Safe Surrey Coalition? Yes, I saw I did see them, absolutely. And uh they were quite quite horrendous in my opinion. They uh, talked about poorly trained RCMP officers uh, that murdered, and they used that language, um, a gentleman in uh, Prince George. Uh, it's, it's surprising, too, because these are the very police officers that they're hoping to recruit for their new police force in Surrey. And what's your response then when we heard from the mayor, Doug McCallum said he had apologized. He he had apologized for that tweet to being, he said, at first he said he wasn't aware of it. It was linked to that account, but did say it was unprofessional and divisive. 
it was divisive. He's absolutely right about that. And um, it was quite unprofessional. But I'm not clear how an unauthorized person gets a hold of a password to a political party site. That is just not, um, that's not a good enough response. There has to be a person identified that has been given a password because um, subsequent to that, they have continued on to put up um, old news uh, that is also meant to discredit the RCMP. So at this point, I, I don't know if you would be given that information, but have you tried to find out who it was that sent out those tweets? Um, well, I have no way of finding that out. All I can tell you is that uh, when when the uh, Safe Surrey Coalition was um, formed and was a political party and running during the election, there was a person by the name of Aaron. Uh, I am not clear about his last name, but there was a person by the name of Aaron that actually was uh, who the mayor identified as social media. Uh, so at this point, uh, what makes it, uh, what do you think, or, or what are your kind of renewed concerns about the, the public safety, given that this transition, according to the mayor, is still going ahead? You know, we're, we're in tough times. We all know that. Um, we're, we're in COVID times. The police need all the support they can get right now. Uh, the RCMP will be policing Surrey. Um, if this transition goes ahead, we'll be still policing Surrey for a very long time. So to be deliberately trying to undermine them and discredit them is, uh, it's, it's actually unconscionable. And I have no idea, uh, what would possess, um, a political party to want to do that. Uh, do you find it strange that, uh, like you said, strange that a somebody would have access to the account that would be able to write and send out that tweet before it was even vetted or before clearly before anyone else saw it? Do you find it strange that the mayor didn't know about it? Well, clearly the mayor didn't know about it because um, Councillor Guerra said that um, her and and um, Councillor Elford had talked and they had contacted the quote powers that be whoever that is i don't know who that is but i think somebody better find out who the powers that be are behind the safe surrey coalition because that kind of attitude is certainly um obviously pervasive in in their social media and needs to stop and where do things stand right now? Uh, like you said, with COVID-19, uh, things are different as far as council meetings and uh, the, the priorities for a lot of people. But f- as far as you know, where do things stand with the transition from the RCMP to a civic force? Well, and that's the part that is, is quite concerning. And I had uh, put a notice of motion forward that we actually paused the transition till we knew um, a lot of things about COVID, not the least of which was the cost. And in Surrey, we know um, so far that the uh, cost is $43 million. So pausing the transition would at least financially help us because the transition costs for this year are about $25 million. We're going to have to go look for that $43 million uh, in other places. And I can tell you uh, there will definitely be uh, serious cuts and adjustments to uh, make our budget work. But on top of that, the city of Syria has laid off 2,000 people. We have also, though, on the police transition, ramped up. So we've increased the number of staff. There's been no decrease in staffing on 
in that department. And I think that's a huge concern, and it should be a huge concern to the residents. Uh, when looking at the um, the Safe Surrey Coalition uh, tw- Twitter handle and, and what this handle tweets and the information it sends out, and granted it's taken down the tweets in question that, uh, that the mayor said he was unaware of but did apologize for, clearly this is a, a Twitter handle that the goal of this is to share news stories and to share information that makes the RCMP look bad. There's no, there's no question, and they have done... Since that particular one, they have done additional ones. I think they've, they did a number of additional uh, negative, um, renew of media on the 31st and, uh, have continued on. So, um, it just really shows that the actions of the Safe Coalition run counter to their actual name because they're doing everything they can to undermine, uh, the, the police and the RCMP in Surrey. What would you like to see or what kind of a response are you hoping from the Premier to the letter that you and uh, Jack Hundile have written? Well, I'm I'm hoping that um, Premier Horrigan will take a look at it, um, will uh, look at the kind of um, responses and the kind of authority that um, this uh, the mayor is taking in terms of the the police transition that they review that and that they go maybe it's time we just stepped back a little bit let um, some of the the dust settle if you will um, and and review the whole process because from the get go from day one uh, the process has been uh, flawed in my opinion and and in the opinion of many other people. All right, we will leave it there. Councillor Locke, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, if you were asked, would you like to work a four-day work week? I'm guessing most people who already work the five-day week might say, sure, if it's for the same amount of pay and I can do my job, why not? Why not have a three-day weekend every single week? But is it possible? Is it a realistic goal that we should be working to? Well, let's check in with Jason Clemens, Vice President of the Fraser Institute, which has just done a new study on this. Jason, thanks so much for being with us. Nope. Sorry, Jason, can you hear me? I can, yes. Oh, there you are. Sorry about that little technical glitch. No problem. <laughs> uh, we won't give the IT people a four-day work week. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> uh, tell, talk a bit about this because you've crunched the numbers and taking a look at the four-day work week. And just to be clear, because a lot of times people automatically think we're talking about taking the five-day, the five-eight-day week and squishing it into four ten-hour days. But this isn't specifically talking about that. No, that's right. Uh, what we're really talking about is historically what, already we went through, which was going from a six-day work week to a five-day work week where we're working on average about 40 hours. Uh, And so this is about how do you get to working 32 hours, roughly, a week, but you have the same or even a slightly higher standard of living than we do in 2020. And the the key to that, in fact, the only way uh, for that to happen, as it has happened in the past, is for us to be more productive. That is, that we do a better job of transforming inputs like raw materials and our labor time and our ingenuity, that that we're better at transforming those inputs into usable goods and services or outputs. And so the, the key is that we've got to increase our productivity growth from roughly 1% to about 2%. 
uh, over the next decade. And then there would be a legitimate opportunity for Canadians to make a decision about whether they wanted to move to a four-day work week and still have the same standard of living uh, that they have in 2020. And would it matter, though, what kind of industry we're talking about? Because I would imagine, I mean, for some industries, it's it's much easier to, to work odd hours and to get things done than it would be for, say, more traditional industry. Or I mean, there's just such a big difference. No, absolutely. Again, we, we look in aggregate. And so there are some industries and some sectors of the economy that would be much more amenable. And in fact, we see that now in terms of flex time, uh, job sharing, telecommuting. I mean, so we already see those things in our economy today. Uh, there are other sectors that will certainly be, be more challenging. But again, the, the, the key common denominator, so to speak, in all of them is that we are more productive. Um, if our workers are more productive, then workers will have the choice, which thankfully we've had for well over 100 years, um, which is, do we want to use our higher level of productivity to have more leisure time or more time on things that are not paying uh, with your family and things? Or do we want a, a much higher standard of living? Now, what's interesting is even over the last 40 years, uh, particularly the 30 years before the last 10, what's very clear is Canadians were by and large choosing to remain or to keep the same number of hours they were working, roughly, but have a much higher standard of living. Um, and again, that's a choice that Canadians can make and, and hopefully will continue to make. The key, though, if we're going to get to a four-day work week, or at least to have a choice of a four-day work week, uh, is that underlying productivity has to be higher than it is now. And do you think in some kind of, uh, I guess, some kind of ironic way, given the current pandemic and the fact that we've really, the, the economy has come to a grinding halt in many cases, are we learning from that as far as working from home, that telecommuting, like you mentioned, or learning different ways where when we're out of this, we actually could be more productive? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it is inevitable that many parts of our economy, uh, that employers are going to be pressured to come up with innovative ways for them to maintain some level of telecommuting, uh, job sharing, uh, more flex time. Uh, because, you know, when you give workers the experience of being able to work from home, and many of them, and in particular, there's many sectors of the economy where we see increased output, um, it's not like we're going to just flip a switch and people are going to say, I'll go back to the old way of commuting every day and going into an office. And so I, I do think there are going to be fairly large sectors of the economy that we are going to see some fundamental changes over the next few years coming out of our experience uh, in the uh, in the economic lockdown that we're, we're still in, unfortunately. Uh, do you think that, I mean, does it need a certain amount of buy-in, though, in, like you said, we used to work six days a week, it went to five. Uh, there are still people who choose to work six days a week, whether or or or, or do that to, to make ends meet. If, if you can suddenly, working four days a week, going down to maybe 32 hours and your productivity stays the same, would there not then be some businesses, some industry would be motivated to, to still have the fifth day and to get even more productivity? Yes, certainly. What's key, though, in those situations is they have to incentivize their workers. And so when we're in a higher productivity environment, um, it's by and large the workers who are benefiting from that higher level of productivity. If, if you look over time, there's a very clear relationship between worker productivity and their compensation. 
Uh, again, the decision, I think, will largely be in the hands of the employees in terms of do I want to keep working five days a work, five days a week and have a much higher level uh, uh, living standard? Or do I want to actually have that four-day um, work week? But my living standard is not going to be as high as it otherwise would be. And, and again, I, I think there are certain sectors of the economy where we're going to see decisions that are going to be very different than other sectors of the economy. And similarly, we're going to see different workers at different stages of their life making different decisions. So, for example, uh, I could certainly see younger people uh, who are trying to pay off student debt, build up some equity to buy a home, starting a family, working that five day, uh, five days a week. Whereas, let's say, more established workers who maybe the kids are out of the house and their house is maybe close to being paid off, who would say, no, if I'm at that level of productivity, I'm going to go to four days a week or three days a week. So we certainly don't want to cast one mold for everybody because there are going to be, again, different circumstances in different sectors for different types of workers. The key is that we would have that choice. And that choice, again, is rooted in uh, a higher level of productivity. Right. And that choice, too, I would imagine, it's how you define a living standard in that some people might define that as having a bigger home or having more money in the bank, whereas others might define it by having family time. And maybe you live in a smaller place or you don't have so-called luxuries, but other things are more valuable to you. No, absolutely. I mean, in fact, you know, in in some of the interviews for the study, you know, I've shared that that my grandfather... uh, you know, who was born in the in the early part of the 20th century, uh, he would remind me uh, pretty consistently that the idea of regular holidays when he was growing up was completely foreign. And now, you know, for many families, it's not one holiday a year. It's what's the winter holiday and what's the summer holiday? Well, that changes because of one thing, because we are more productive. We're more, uh, we have a higher standard of living, we're wealthier, and we can afford more leisure time. And so, as you say, uh, there are certain people uh, who will choose to have a much higher standard of living because they'll keep working more hours. Uh, and there are others that will choose more leisure. And the key, though, the key, again, is, uh, is that they have that choice based on a higher level of productivity. And just one other question. How do you actually uh, um, measure the productivity and, and how can you measure and know for sure that, OK, looking at this year, particular year in, in Canada, it's gone up 2%? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's certainly, as we would say in, in the profession, there's lots of noise in the data. And so we want to be careful about recognizing there are some problems in the data. Um, but what we basically are doing is using Statistics Canada data to look at total output in any particular year versus the number of hours that are worked, uh, which comes from uh, the Labor Force Survey, again, from Statistics Canada, and then looking at that over time uh, and adjusting for inflation. Um, But you do raise a really important question. And just as one example, one of the things that Statistics Canada is struggling with, and they're probably at the forefront globally in thinking this through, is how we value services that we clearly are using, but that have no cost. So, for example, we all have apps on our phone or our computers that we didn't pay anything for, that we enjoy and that we use, but we actually didn't buy them. And so there are some of these questions over time about how we value output uh, that are important ones, when we're, particularly when we're looking at changes over time, uh, that we are still struggling with. But overall, when you look at the data, I think it is pretty clear that we have seen a decline in productivity growth rates, and that if we're going to get to this uh, point where we can make a decision about much higher standard of living or a four-day work week, 
that it's going to have to be rooted in a higher growth rate for our productivity over the next decade. All right. We will leave it there. Jason, thanks so much for for joining us to talk about this. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you.